0: listening on sermons huh anyway anyway 2 weeks ago previously we began our look at the word of god and we used psalm 119 that day as our primary lens to look through but really we were just looking at many of the things that the word of god has to say about itself we looked at how the writer of psalm 119 viewed god's word and how much of what the psalmist wrote can really be a model of love God's Word for us as believers. We noted that we have an abundance of the Word. Most of us have many Bibles, and we have many different translations. We remember that people throughout the centuries have sacrificed much just to have the Word of God, even to the point sometimes of sacrificing their lives. And we recall that many people have gone to great lengths just to be able to read the Bible. For themselves, including remember the story we told about the man who was blind, who had no feeling in his fingers and actually read through the Bible in Braille with his tongue. That kind of love for the word, that kind of devotion to the word of God truly is an example for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 119 has actually written a love poem. He called it sweeter than honey and better than money. It was a love poem extolling the virtues of and his love for the Word of God. We looked at some of the reasons we might struggle with our devotion to the Word. For example, we don't like what it reveals about us when we read it. It's even offensive sometimes. Regardless of the reason, whether it's hard to understand or hard to accept, or simply, for most of us, it's just hard to discipline ourselves to read it, the Word is so important the Word is so vital to our spiritual life and well-being that we cannot forget, or as verse uh, 16 of Psalm 119 notes, we cannot neglect the Word of God. The Word is the very life of God to us. Remember Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live on bread alone, but lives on God's Word. Then Jesus also said that he himself is the bread of life. Jesus said we live on God's word, and he said he is the living word. So we can't really separate Jesus from the word because he is the word. We'll look at that idea more here in just a minute. It's important to note also that this psalm wasn't written in a vacuum. This wasn't just some ivory tower guy, um, cloistered scholar who had nothing better to do than sit and think and read God's word. Psalm 119 was written in the real world. It was written by a real person with real problems that all of us, I think, it can in some ways relate to. The psalmist says, for example, in various portions of this chapter, that he was derided. He said he was oppressed. He was persecuted. He was weary. He was slandered. He was sorrowful. All of these descriptions are in this psalm, describing the psalmist himself. Yet, God's word was life to him. God's word was life. To This psalmist, this psalm is also a prayer to God for the psalmist's ability to stand firm. So much of it really is a prayer in the midst of an ungodly, degenerate people. It was a prayer in the midst of trouble. In fact, apart from four verses in this psalm, verses 1 through 3 and verse 115, this whole psalm is actually addressed to God. Yet recognizing that God's word is the key for him a reliance on God and His revelation to us in His Word is what carries this writer through all these challenges that he speaks of and actually prays about in this particular psalm. So despite the hard things in the Word, despite his human nature, this psalmist, while directing the psalm to God, also tells us that God's Word is faithful and God's Word is true. God's Word is living and active. God's word is useful to us and authoritative in everything related to our faith. There was an unknown writer who wrote this. He wrote, this book is the mind of God, the state of men, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. He wrote, read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you into Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. Wow. Isn't that something? That's a lot to expect from one book. But none of this does any of us a bit of good If our absolute priority is not the Word, if we don't make it our absolute priority in our life, it's our first, our middle, and our last go-to with everything in our lives for our faith and practice and a priority for our guidance and direction in life. We see that the Word was just this for the early church. There's a very familiar verse that we've read here often. It's Acts 2.42, and it says, "...and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching." and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So what was the apostles' teaching? It was the Word of God, folks. It's much of what has become for us the Word of God, specifically in their case the New Testament and what they taught from the Old Testament. Of course, we see also this level of devotion to the Word in the Old Testament as well, and not just in the Psalms. We've seen several verses in Psalms, the last message, and even here this morning. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verses 6 through 9, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So knowing all this, knowing all this, Why do we neglect, or as some versions say, forget the Word of God? We've already looked at some of this. We looked at it last time. We looked at it briefly here this morning. You know, there's not enough time, right? Gee, I just don't have enough time. It's too hard to understand. At least that's what we say. There's a lack of good teaching. Maybe we don't have good teaching. Now, if you're here at TCF, I don't think that's true. And then there's just poor motivation. Let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we're just not motivated. We also must ask if sometimes is there a lack of spiritual hunger in our lives. And that's why we don't consume the word as often as we should. Andrew Murray wrote, The first need for Bible study is a great hunger after righteousness, a desire to do God's will in all things. How do we accomplish this? Well, you remember the Nike phrase, just do it? That's kind of where you start. The more we feed ourselves on the bread of life, the more we hunger. The word is called our milk in 1 Peter 2.2. The word is called our bread in John 6.51. It's called our meat. It's called our honey, as we read. The word gets better tasting the more we eat. You remember uh, the Lay's potato chip campaign, Bet You Can't Eat Just One? Well, that's what the word of God is like. The more we hunger for the word, the more enjoyable and richer it will become to our souls. And the reverse is true as well, folks. The less we partake of the word, the less we desire it. You know, it's an interesting thing for famine relief workers when they note this. Having nothing in their stomach for so many days, the victims felt no hunger. Those of you who've been in those kind of situations, Joel, you can attest to that. They actually had passed the stage of desiring food. Some of you have fasted and noted that, gee, you're really hungry at first, but after you get to a point, you're just really not that hungry. This is a picture of many Christians. The Bible doesn't appeal to them anymore because they've gone without its nourishment for so long. There's also a need for diligence. This is just good old-fashioned, let's do it, let's stick to it. Paul even encouraged Timothy in this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not be ashamed, need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. A one-minute devotional Bible may be okay for starters, and it's probably better than nothing, but diligence is not an option for anybody who is very serious about following Jesus. George Mueller wrote in a great little book called A Narrative of Some of the Lord's Dealings with George Mueller. Don't you love that title? He wrote this, it's a common temptation of Satan to make us give up the reading of the word and prayer when our enjoyment is gone as if it were of no use to read the Scriptures when we do not enjoy them, and as if it were of no use to pray when we have no spirit of prayer. The truth is that in order to enjoy the Word, we ought to continue to read it. And the way to obtain a spirit of prayer is to continue praying. The less we read the Word of God, the less we desire to read it, and the less we pray, the less we desire to pray. It's so true, folks. It's so true. It's part of our human nature. It's part of our fallen nature. We need to just do it. So the important thing is giving God time and giving God regularity in however He leads us to read His Word. Whatever time of day or method we choose, we must make the Word a priority in our lives. And we have to understand that even as God Himself has attributes, such as His omnipotence, His mercy, His grace, His love, His holiness, His omniscience, and so much more that we could name, so does the Word have attributes, the Word that he uses to reveal himself. The psalmist recognized these things. Paul, the apostle, recognized these things as he wrote letters in the New Testament. And even Jesus recognized these things about the Word. Now, I've heard it said, and I suppose you might accuse somebody of actually worshiping the Word rather than God. But I think that would be a rather hard accusation to make stick. If you see the word even as the psalmist saw it remember that Jesus himself is the word. We read in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then we read just a few verses later just to make sure you really get who the word is that we're talking about here. In verse 14, the word became flesh. We're talking Jesus, folks. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is where we get the idea, the truth, that Jesus himself is the living word. So that's why I say it's rather hard to justify an accusation that one worships, well, you worship the word more than you worship God. That's creating a false separation. It's creating a false dichotomy because Jesus is the word made flesh. And the Word was God. So, the written Word, which is described by Scripture itself as living and active, which is described as useful for training in righteousness, is connected in a very real sense to Jesus, the living Word. So, the Word itself has attributes that it helps us to begin to grasp in our understanding of what the Word is. I found a helpful acronym that illustrates four key attributes. Of Scripture. Of course, I don't think these are exhaustive any more than the list I mentioned of God Himself a moment ago uh, is exhaustive. But this acronym is SCAN, okay? It's SCAN. The word is sufficient, the word is clear, the word is authoritative, and the word is necessary. So let's unpack these ideas just a little bit more this morning as we move on. Sufficiency. The Scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. Let me say that again. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and for godly living. You know what? We don't need any new revelation from heaven. Unfortunately, we see a lot of this idea of new revelation in some segments of the charismatic movement, which is part of the background of many in this fellowship, including myself. It's the idea that somehow God's revelation of himself in Scripture is not enough. Sometimes, somehow, we need to, we need to have more. We seem to have this need for more. Scripture isn't sufficient. Most of, pe- most of those same people will give lip service to the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, but in the extreme, we see some saying things like, and this is a direct quote of one of these teachers, I get mine direct, referring to revelation from God. Or here's another direct quote from one of these teachers. We have to go off the map, referring to our need to find things in addition to Scripture and the things we must know about our faith and our practice. This is a dangerous place to go, folks, because it denies the sufficiency of Scripture, not to mention also denying the authority of Scripture. There was an article in a Christian magazine about ten years ago And the writer of this article wrote about an experience that he had where he believed that God gave him a book outline and title and then directed him to use the money that he made from that book to help someone else. And he finished the article by saying how strengthened his faith had been to finally have God personally speak to him. Okay? Now, there's a pastor and an author by the name of Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote about this article. And by the way, uh, a lot of the the thoughts that we're going to hear this morning are from a great little book he wrote about the Word called Taking God at His Word. Anyway, he wrote this about this story. He said it's a fine story in many ways, except in this crucial way. It gives the impression that God does not normally speak to us personally. The article leaves us feeling as though God speaking to us through the Scriptures is an inferior, less exciting, less edifying means of communication. And we can't help but conclude, he said about this article, Yes, the Bible's important, but oh, what a treasure it would be if I could experience God really speaking to me. If only I could hear from the sure and infallible voice of God. Now, all of us who are followers of Christ here want that, don't we? We want to hear God's voice, don't we? We want to hear the voice of God. But this author seems to have missed something crucial, which the psalmist didn't miss in Psalm 119, and many other Old Testament and New Testament writers didn't miss either all of us can hear the voice of God today, today, today. You know how? You can open this book up and you can read it and you hear the voice of God in this book. This is the voice of God. This is recorded for us. This is how God speaks. Yes, God still speaks. And his word recorded for us is sure and steady and unerring. The authority of God's word resides in the written text. The words, the sentences, the paragraphs of Scripture, not merely in our existential experience of the truth in our hearts. Some people don't like written texts and propositions because they imply a stable, fixed meaning, and people don't want the truth to be fixed. They would rather have inspiration be more subjective, more internal, now more experiential. Now, let me be very quick to clarify here. None of this suggests that the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that our Bible is, in fact, the very Word of God to us, means there is nothing internal, there's nothing subjective, there or there's nothing experiential in the life of a believer in Christ. These are very real things. The Scripture impacts us in a very real, very experiential way. God's Word convicts us of sin. It shows us the way. It leads us from darkness into light. We immerse ourselves in Scripture so that the morning... Christ himself would rise in our hearts. So the goal of Revelation is not information only, but affection, worship, and obedience. Christ in us will be realized only as we drink deeply of the Bible, which is God's word outside of us. Finally, regarding Scripture's sufficiency, we read in Jude uh, 1-3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. That's a powerful phrase. That's what we have in our Bibles, folks. It's sufficient. There is no new revelation, nor is any new revelation needed. We may gain fresh understanding of old truths, but there's no new revelation. The bottom line is Scripture is sufficient. Certainly we can experience God's message to us. But without the Word, you know what? We can't tell for sure if it's really God's message or our own hearts speaking to us, which Scripture tells us can deceive us. Or worse yet, the enemy of our souls can deceive us into thinking what I'm, th- what I'm experiencing, what I'm thinking on my own is really the Word of God. We need the Word of God. To tell us what's really the Word of God. Secondly, Scripture is clear. The saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught in the Scriptures. The Word can be understood by all who have ears to understand it. We don't need an official magisterium. That's what they call the Catholic Church uh, hierarchy. We don't need an official magisterium to tell us what the Bible means as the Catholic Church teaches. Now, Yes, as we've noticed, some Scripture is, can be, hard to understand. There are doctrines that are difficult. I'll admit that. All of us would have to admit that. There are things in the Word that literally take us a lifetime to grow into a fuller, a more complete understanding. There are also those things that we I don't believe we'll ever fully understand, at least this side of eternity. But Scripture is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibilities to God. An understanding of and belief in the clarity of Scripture takes away any excuses we have for disobedience. No one can say that God has not revealed enough for us to be saved or to live a life pleasing to Him. We read in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness, That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped, folks. Not partially equipped, not needing something else in addition to, not incomplete, not inadequate in any way. The truth is we can know what we need to know. What we can't fully grasp are those things that we must not need to fully grasp. We only need to grasp them in part. We've discussed this idea in our house church before. Scripture doesn't tell us everything there is to know. Scripture says nothing, for example, about using PowerPoints in a sermon. I've searched and searched, and it's just not there. Scripture says nothing about electricity, I guess, unless you want to mention lightning. Of course, that's mentioned in Scripture. Scripture says nothing about all kinds of different things that we could list and spend all day here. But Scripture does according to its own testimony, tell us everything we need to know for our faith and for obedience. Second Peter 1.3 says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have all we need through the knowledge of him, and the knowledge of him comes how? Through the word of God. The word tells us how to be saved. It tells us how to live righteously in obedience to Christ. Six times in the New Testament, Jesus asks, have you not read? You can think of some of those instances. And each instance, he's suggesting that his opponents, if they had known the Scriptures better, they wouldn't be making the mistakes that they were making. Jesus spoke of and Jesus quoted God's revelation. And he did that with the assumption that it could be clearly understood. So did the apostles. We see in many places, especially in the book of Acts, and we see in the epistles even, how they reasoned from Scripture. The clarity of Scripture is a doctrine that's undermined in some segments of the church today. Think of this. Sometimes it might sound sort of humble to challenge the clarity of Scripture. One might say, well, gee, if we could define God with our words, then he wouldn't be God anymore. Have you heard anything like that? I have. The idea in this line of thinking includes the thought that human language is so flawed that we cannot know God exhaustively. Now, of course, that's partially true, but it's accompanied by a false assumption. Just because we cannot know God exhaustively, fully understanding Him this side of eternity, does not mean we cannot know Him at all. God uses words to reveal Himself and His will throughout Scripture. For example, what did he do at creation? He spoke creation into existence. And then what does he do next in history? He speaks to Adam. He expected Adam to understand what he said and to obey. And then we see who was the first one to challenge the clarity of God's words, God's revelation of himself to Adam and Eve. Who was it? It was Satan. It was the enemy in the form of a, certain, a serpent. And what did he ask? He said, did God really say? Did God really say? Of course, though we do have the responsibility to interpret Scripture, this is never meant to be done apart from the body of Christ. It's never meant to be done apart from good teaching or without remembering history or without thinking about what, it, what have they believed about this for the last 2,000 years. It's not meant to be a, done apart from biblical scholarship. You know, we need each other, folks. We need each other, and we need those who came before us. So the question is not whether we are haughty enough to think we have peered into the recesses of eternity and understand God completely or omnisciently. The question is whether God is the sort of God who is willing to communicate with his creatures and able to do so effectively. Can God speak, or is he gagged? Good question. Scripture is also authoritative there's the a in scan the authority of scripture is another crucial attribute of his word that we dismiss at our own peril the last word always goes to god's word let me say that one again the last word always goes to god's word we can learn things in science we can learn things in our human experience but none of these things can or should take precedence over what the bible teaches We looked at some of these ideas a few weeks ago. Sometimes we find reasons to reject the Word of God because we don't want to do what it says. Or what it says causes us some kind of pain or discomfort in ourselves or even in our relationships. You know, I think it's very interesting to note how many people who previously, maybe throughout their whole lives, accepted the words clear teaching on certain sinful behaviors. And then because now... Someone they know has chosen to ignore Scripture's label of a certain behavior as sin. Now they no longer accept the authority of Scripture, at least on that issue. And then there's always a slippery slope because they dismiss that one, and then they can dismiss the next one and the next one. Of course, the best example of this is the tidal wave of change and acceptance and even celebration of homosexual behavior. Now, we see when someone who has a friend or a loved one who is a homosexual, and even when they've all their lives, again, believed what Scripture says about this, now all of a sudden they dismiss the reproof and the correction of Scripture and accept that sin as well as the sinner, and they may even celebrate the sin. Now, we do accept the sinner, folks, and uh, I'm not going to say anything at all about how you relate to those in sin. That's a rabbit trail I'm not going to go down this morning. Nevertheless, I think this is an example, the best example in our culture today, of how Scripture's authority is so often just cast aside. It's cast aside when Scripture says something we don't like or something that negatively impacts a relationship. People choose to side aside Scripture's authority rather than navigate the difficult challenge of how taking Scripture as the final word on any issue makes a part of our life tough. At least author Algis Huxley, remember who he is? He wrote Brave New World. Many of us had to read that in high school. He was honest about this. He said, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So, okay, at least he's honest. We read in Acts 17 about the Bereans. They were called more noble because they were completely submissive to the authority of Scripture. When it says the Bereans in uh, Acts chapter 17 verse 11 were examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so, the implication that was that if Scripture said it, they would believe it. If Scripture said it, they would believe it. Now think about this. Every religion rests on authority. In fact, pretty much every discipline of life, every academic field, every business model, every lifestyle, Even every sphere of science rests on authority somewhere. Whether we realize it or not, we all give something or someone the last word. We give our parents the last word. We give our culture, our community, our feelings, the government, opinion polls, subjective personal impressions, or a holy book. We all have someone or something that we turn to as the final answer for truth claims. For us, as believers in Christ, this authority is the Word of God we have in our Bibles. Of course, we can misunderstand and we can misapply the Word of God, but when it's interpreted correctly, paying attention to the original context, considering the literary genre of the various books in the Bible, thinking through the author's intent, all those things in place, the Bible is never wrong in what it affirms. And it must never be minimized to anything less than the absolute last word on everything it teaches. Finally, the N in scan. Scripture is necessary. Scripture is necessary. The word tells us in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then in verse 7 we read, The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We see in Romans 1 a clear picture of the state of our world today, and we realize that this was written 2,000 years ago, but it's really nothing new. We read in Romans 1, beginning with verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So when we say that Scripture is necessary... We see that though there is a general revelation of God in creation, that's what these verses we just read are talking about. And this general general revelation is just as clear as his word. It's not enough to save us all by itself. We cannot be saved by means of personal experience, even a personal experience of his general revelation in creation. We cannot be saved by human reason. We absolutely need God's Word. We need it to tell us about our need for redemption. We need it to tell us about His plan for saving us from before the beginning of time. We need it to tell us who Jesus is. We need it to tell us how to live. We need it to tell us how to be saved. J.I. Packer wrote this, God then does not profess to answer in Scripture all the questions that we in our boundless curiosity would like to ask about Scripture. He tells us merely as much as he sees we need to know as a basis for our life of faith. And he leaves unsolved some of the problems raised by what he tells us in order to teach us a humble trust in his veracity. Isn't that a good thought? So when we don't understand something, we have to trust him. This reminds us that Jesus cannot be fully discovered on our own but it doesn't leave us there. The same Jesus we cannot discover on our own made himself known. He revealed his love. He revealed his grace and his mercy in the flesh and in his word. The reformer John Calvin said that the scriptures are our spectacles. That's an old-fashioned word for glasses, isn't it? The word is the lens through which we see God, through which we see the world, through which we see ourselves. It's the way that it was meant to be seen when we see these things through the lens of the Word of God. We can't truly know God. We can't truly know His will or the way of salvation apart from the Bible. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2 says, Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Isn't that a great idea? Think about that phrase, the apple of your eye. Think of those things that you might describe as the apple of your eye. Maybe your wife or your kids. They may be the apple of your eye. Maybe something or someone special. Something or someone very valuable. Perhaps of more value than anything else to you. Perhaps sweeter than honey. Perhaps better than money. The psalmist and even others in the New Testament saw that value, and we need to see that value. Jeremiah did. He wrote in chapter 15, verse 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. You might ask this Why does it matter if the Bible is my heart's delight? You might think, I thought this book was about Jesus. Yes, yes, exactly. Once we see what the Bible is actually all about, the glory of God and the work of his son, our heart explodes in joy. Worship is echoed from the word. The heart exalts in the exaltation of God. Christians love the Bible not simply for the facts, not simply for the truths we find, but because the Bible ushers us in to the worship of God. We learn more about God. We see God's awesome love and power. We see the great story of God and His love for rebels. We are thrown at the feet of God and humbled by His grace. And there in the words of God, we discover and worship the Word, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. We see God's Word as sweeter than honey and better than money because having Christ live inside of us is sweeter than honey and better than money. God's word is enough or sufficient. God's word is understandable or clear. God's word is final or authoritative. God's word is necessary. As we prepare to close, I want you to prayerfully listen. I'm going to read just a few verses from Psalm 119. And as I read these, uh, make these psalmist words into your own prayer as we begin our closing prayer. And then ask God how he would have you respond to this word this morning about his word. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands. For there I find delight. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the wonderful word of God we're grateful that to us it is truly sweeter than honey and better than money. Father, we recognize our own frailty and our own weakness in seeking after you. And Lord, we recognize our own frailty in the lack of diligence or discipline we have. We recognize our own frailty as we look to the word and resist parts of it that impact our lives in such a way that make it hard for us. But Lord, we want these things Lord we want even as the psalmist said that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your law so father may the word truly be living and active in our lives and sharper than a two-edged sword as we read it daily as we study it together in small groups and in house churches as we hear it preached from this pulpit on Sunday mornings Lord we pray that your word would truly be all those things that it would be sufficient in our lives, that it would be absolutely clear, Father, by the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that it would truly be the final word, Lord, the authority for all of our faith and our practice, and that we would recognize the absolute necessity of the word in our lives, Father God. We're grateful that you have been so gracious to us as to choose to speak to us through the clear and written revelation of yourself in the word of God help us father to always treat your word as sweeter than honey and better than money amen
1: thank you bill for being faithful to bring this two part series to us these last several weeks and uh, that your acronym was was amazingly helpful. God's word is sufficient. It is clear. It is authoritative, and it is necessary. Father, even as we uh, prepare to leave now, help us to apply your word in every area of our lives. Not only in those areas that are convenient, but in areas where your word uh, gives us the answer that we perhaps uh, didn't want to hear. But help us, Lord, to be not only hearers, but doers of your word in every area of our lives. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray and we believe. And may now the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're dismissed, uh, we do have a basket here for our monthly benevolence offering. God bless you. Have a really, really great day. Amen.